And obviously it feels pretty, like, pretty crappy, right? Yeah, it feels pretty crappy, but it's like, I mean, I've been growing up in Chicago since forever, so I'm like, you know, pretty much fuck you too, then, like, I'm, I'm over it. I'm, am I supposed to curse in your podcast name? Don't worry about it. <laughs> This is The Vein. Miles Johnson is a second year um, in the college. So I guess as some, like, backstory, I was in CAP, which was, like, a um, – it's called the Chicago Academic Achievement Program, and it was, like, a uh, sort of three-month, like, get you comfortable with Chicago with, like, other kids. And a lot of the kids there were, like um, – were were from like minority backgrounds and I remember a time where we were in a meeting with like uh, counselors and other people and we were specifically told that like we might be stopped by UCPD at some time uh, until I think the exact quote was they're they're used to her face. Nina Kate Maswa is a third year in the college. Yeah so my friend would get off at the 55 stop and basically walk you know just straight shot to to my dorm. Um, this time he came and it was a little later, I think it was a Friday night, it was like 10pm um, or something like that, it was late, and he was walking, um, like I said, like towards my dorm building and he was stopped by a UCPD vehicle who um, pulled over and basically asked him um, what his business was being there, like for his ID, essentially. And he didn't go to this school, and so he could only provide, like, a very generic type of ID. <clears throat> and then after that, he was basically, like, directed to, like, one of the security guards who was on the corner. And the security guard essentially said that, you know, he would escort him to my dorm. <laughs> so just, I guess, to make sure that he was was telling the truth and, and that he really knew someone who lived there. So they, this guard like walked him all the way to Max P and then I get a call um, from him and he's like, I'm downstairs, can you, can you come get me? They don't believe that, you know, you actually live here. So I came down and there was a security guard standing next to him and it was very embarrassing and I, I mean, I realized that a lot of it had to do with the fact that he was African American and at the time, because it was cold, he was wearing a hoodie, he was, you know, <laughs> bundled up like you should be in this, in this type of weather, right? Oh yeah, I, I lived in High Park most of my life. JT works and mentors at Blackstone Bikes. When I finally moved out of my parents' house, I moved over on Kim Park, right behind Kim Park uh, Liquors with mm-hmm. the Leonas. And uh, apparently some bums was in the back, was in the alley and uh, they they were, so somebody was throwing rocks at them. It wasn't us because we was like all in the front room literally watching the movie. So somebody was throwing rocks at them. They came, the UC police came straight to my door. It wasn't like they came, you know, to another door. The reason why they came straight to my door is because they was harassing uh, uh, Kenwood student right outside my house. You know, me being a youth mentor, I'm like, leave him alone, you know. Let that kid go, you know what I'm saying, stuff like that. They let him go. Then they, they just looked at me and was just like, just mean mugged the crap out of me. And it was just like, I'm going back in the house now. <laughs> I just went in the house. And then later on that night, the same two police officers showed up with four other police officers. And they pretty much raided my house. It was a raid. They didn't ask to come in. They didn't knock on the door. They just opened the door, like literally. Like the door was unlocked and they just opened them, came right in, searched the whole place, found one BB gun. One BB gun in my friend's Donald's room, and he got arrested that night for a BB gun, for possession of a BB gun. 
and they didn't charge him with anything. They just arrested him. He was he was in his room playing his video game, like literally headphones, just full immersed. Didn't even know they was in his room. They opened the door to his room, saw the BB gun, and took the BB gun. It's this yours? And he's like, whoa, whoa, like how do like what you doing? You know? And they just picked him up, took him, and he just took it. Just like no, I'm just gonna go because Donald is a big black man. He's a big black man, and if he even tried to resist arrest or Anything like that, it would it would have turned into a whole nother situation that it should have been. It would have escalated. Mm -hmm. The the police they only escalate the situation. That's what it seems like to me. That's what I do. I don't drive my car in High Park. I can't. I moved out of High Park like a, a month ago, and I I can't. I won't drive my car through. I ride my bike through it, but I would not drive my car through it. Brianna Tong is a fourth year in the college. Well, um, luckily, I haven't been like stopped walking on my own. Um, the only time I, I was ever in a car that was stopped by the UCPD was when like a black man was driving and everyone else in the car was black. Um, and I've definitely had different experiences like with a white driver. Um, and I also live, now I live at 53rd in Drexel and the UCPD are over there a lot. One night I was coming home and they'd like blocked off the entire block of 52nd um, between like, um, or yeah, of Ingleside between 51st and 52nd. Um, and all we could see were like two black kids in a car. Also, um, there was an incident once when I and a few friends, also black, um, were walking back from a frat party one night. And again, this is late. And um, uh, again, a UCPD officer stopped us and basically asked us what our business was again, um, but this time sort of insinuating that I guess we were like prostitutes or, or sex workers. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was a shock to me. And then um, yeah, because it was a very like accusatory like, and and he saw that we were wearing like <laughs> party attire, party attire, right? You know, I mean, nothing that you wouldn't see at a regular frat party, you know. So. We had to essentially be like, no, we're students, we're coming from a party, we're just walking home, you know. But I thought it was interesting because only like a few, just just a little bit in front of us, there was a, a really loud, rowdy group of like students who looked mostly white. And I saw some of them holding like red solo cups in their hands. Clearly, like these people were being more of a disturbance than me and like my two other friends who were just walking home in semi-skimpy attire I guess but if I'm some theta and I you know I'm not of color or whatever I and I'm going to my mixer and I want to wear like six inch heels or whatever like that's totally fine you know yeah. we understand you know do you need a ride do you want us to help you get there safely like <laughs> you know Dr. Miles Durkee. I am the William T. Grant postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Comparative Human Development. Yeah, so my research looks at the racialized experiences of ethnic minority students, uh, mostly attending predominantly white universities. So, and I look at their identity development during that stage of late adolescence into emerging adulthood. Um, a lot of my research has been focused on the negative um, so experiences with discrimination and racial microaggressions and how that then affects how individuals think about themselves in terms of their um, racial group. So we have to, one, um, we have to define microaggressions. So microaggressions are very common, oftentimes chronic, um, subtle, and explicit forms of um, insults or invalidations or um, just hostile behavior towards um, minority and marginalized groups. So 
what makes microaggressions um, more detrimental over the long term is that they oftentimes happen a lot more frequently than your more explicit forms of discrimination. And then um, in addition to the frequency of them happening, since they are subtle, um, the victims of these microaggressions oftentimes have to ruminate over those experiences and they have to almost question. A lot of times we notice that they even doubt themselves. And when they see a microaggression and they know that they felt treated unfairly, they still question their own behavior. Like, did that really happen? Am I overreacting? And through that process of it uh, ruminating, then we tend to see those more longitudinal um, chronic negative effects. Yeah, yeah. So um, I tend to work very late at night. Um, so I'm usually in the offices, oftentimes um, during after hours. And then leaving the office late, um, several times there's a lot less people around. So being African-American male, you know, leaving an academic building by himself, um, it's been a few times where the police have, but it, I could say that the, it wasn't a hostile confrontation. It was more of the police just trying to kind of fill me out to, to discern if I belong there or not. So, but once again, I, I expected it. I saw it coming. I was proactive. I pulled up my ID mm-hmm. <laughs> just to show it right there to kind of circumvent, you know, the situation escalating. You know, to, to people, to other people, I think they're called microaggressions. But to me, I mean, it's macro. It's macro. Like, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's fair either way, yeah. right? Lauren is a senior at Kenwood Academy. I think my mom actually got into some altercation at UCPD where she's coming. I remember I was about, I have to be about sophomore in high school. She's coming to get me through High Park, mm-hmm. still at Kenwood. And I get in the car and she's crying. She's crying her eyes out like... I don't know why she's crying at all. Like, yeah. So anyway, I asked her why it was wrong with her, and she didn't want to tell me. She was so she was like, she was almost like traumatized, like mortified, like mm-hmm. disgusted. She was so upset, and she says the UCPD they keep bothering me. Like she could not tell me in specific what they did. Um, I mean, I was like sitting outside the the Regenstein. This is another story. At about like 10 p.m., and I had a friend walking in with a backpack, and there was a UCPD car parked at the whole gate, and um. He was walking in, like, pretty briskly dressed um, fine, like, just a T-shirt and jeans. He was just, like, a black male. Um, And so he's walking in there pretty briskly, and the UCPD officer gets out of the car and actually, like, chases after him into the Regenstein. And once he realizes that, you know, he could scan his ID and that he's a student, um, sort of, like, leaves, uh, looks a little embarrassed, like, you know, hopefully nobody saw that. And um, just just went on with the day. Your, a little your bit of history. Yeah, a little bit of history. Perfect. Okay, my name is Rudy Nemox, as you know. I'm an octogenarian, as you probably know. Been around a long time. Rudy Nemox began his career as a police officer in Chicago in 1956. Over the years, he worked as a patrol officer, detective, lieutenant, captain, commander of the Homicide Division, chief of Organized Crime Division, and deputy superintendent for investigative services. In 1989, he retired from the CPD and began working as the chief of the University of Chicago Police Department. Then I uh, came to the University of Chicago. I was police chief here for 20 years, and then I was in the position I'm in now about six years ago. And that's director for community partnerships. And when I started in the 50s as a police officer, the attitude of the police was considerably different from what it is now. How so? 
Well, we didn't have a, a community orientation at all. Right. You couldn't find a patrol officer at a community meeting ever. And as a matter of fact, they shunned going to community meetings. Their philosophy was at that time, and I had the same philosophy too, that we're police officers, we're not social workers. But we're just out here, you know, we go after the bad guys. That's our mission. And of course now, it has turned completely around. And that's uh, considered kind of archaic. Yeah. If you have that sort of approach now, I mean, you, you shouldn't be a, the head of any police department if you have the idea that you're not a part of the community. If you feel like you are a part from the community, you have a big Under Rudy Nimix, the UCPD became formally accredited as a law enforcement agency. Its jurisdiction also expanded. Well, I was responsible for that jurisdiction being spread that way, right. spread twice. First from 61st to 64th, mm -hmm. and then from 47th to 39th Street. Uh, we had community meetings with the elected officials, community residents. We talked to them about extending our jurisdiction, what they thought about it, pros and cons. And they couldn't wait for us to come because once they found out they didn't have to pay any more taxes, they'd get that additional coverage and it wouldn't cost them anything. So. It went very well, and the only complaint when we did the community meetings was that we didn't go far enough. They wanted to go to 71st Street and, right. you know, the State Street and all that kind of stuff, you know. So anyway, uh, and the rationale behind that is something you guys should know, and that is uh, we had a staff meeting one morning, and we were trying to think what can the university do in order to improve the quality of life in these contiguous communities. And I piped up and said, the university has two major attributes. One is education, and one is public safety. Public safety because at that time, uh, university police was about the second or third largest police department in the state of Illinois, even though it was private. I said, those are the two things that we have to offer. Um, so my name is Brianna Tong. I'm a senior here, and um, I've been working with Southside Solidarity Network mm -hmm. on campus since my second year. And uh, we started this campaign, the Campaign for Equitable Policing, about halfway through that year. So I've been working on it since then. Yeah, I think one of the main things is that um, so the CPD has obviously a lot of problems, um, but they are a public police force, and so they have to have some, uh, obviously not very much, but like a, a a small degree of transparency and like accountability, um, and the University of Chicago is uh, has even less of that than the CPD, and that's because they are a private police force. Um, so I think like one, they call themselves private, but their jurisdiction is from like 35th to 64th, and like cottage to the lake. So most of their jurisdiction are not university affiliated people um but then they by calling themselves private they don't have to release any of the um like statistics or information on the stops they make um and they don't have to release like what their policies are or make the complaint process particularly easy to get through um so they use a lot of the they call themselves a private police force but they police a lot of the public mm -hmm. i mean i think so I've heard, I've definitely heard that. I've also heard they just expanded it because they put charter schools there, right. uh, which I think is part of a larger, you know, uh, part of the way the university interacts with 
like mm-hmm. the whole community around it. Um, but I think it's true that some like some people definitely say like we want more police, um, and that's true of like people all throughout like the South Side and people all throughout like every city um, where there like sometimes is a lot of crime in neighborhoods and people like want a solution. Um, but I think that's I think. Obviously, we've seen that more police are not solving the problems, uh, that they're, like, not really decreasing crime, and they're creating more problems. Um, And they're, like, literally shooting people down for being black in the streets. Um, We started this campaign as kind of a response to another um, action from the Trauma Center campaign that was, um, I guess, like, 2000. 12 or 13 um but basically the uh students for health equity and their allies like off campus were um doing um an action outside the hospital for a trauma center and uh toussaint lozier who was a grad student here at the time um and a black man uh was the police liaison and as part of the like action uh when the police were called they like threw him to the ground basically (laughs) even though he was supposed to be like the police contact and like just like did not treat him fairly and then arrested him um on some like basically trumped up charges that they give to organizers and protesters and I think a lot of that happened uh because he was a tall black man who like even though he was a grad student here like obviously uh did not fit the profile of what they consider a student so um in response to that um and also in response to like experiencing and hearing other people's stories about racial profiling done by the UCPD on campus and the event that happened before I was even a student here with the um, student in the reg A-level who got arrested um, for talking and uh, because he was black. Uh, we started this campaign as a way to address that. So we've had, base, I think the only ways we've gotten meetings so far are through direct actions on the university. Last, this Halloween, we brought like 80 people into the admin office, and that's how we got a meeting with some like key decision makers. So, definitely like a huge part of our organizing. Like, a lo- pretty much the only way that students um, can be recognized as like powerful people who should be involved in decision making by the university is like by bringing a lot of people in a disruptive way. <laughs> Oh, there's there's some tension, yes. Uh, Everybody knows that. The big thing now is racial profiling. And as I alluded to when we first started, uh, that's a problem all over the country. has been. That's part of the fabric of the American society. Racial profiling started a long, long time ago. So you have to, as a police administrator, you have to understand how can you negate some of these attitudes that you know this person has before they go out and start training people. I mean, uh, 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 patrolling people. Mm-hmm. Because you- they have these, that, that expectation. And even on top of that, you go in a neighborhood like Hyde Park, uh, I'd say way over 95% of the people that get arrested in Hyde Park for serious crimes are black people, okay? So if a police officer isn't careful, the expectation when they see people out on the street, you know, they're the mean of the way they look and all that, the expectation is this is more likely to be a criminal than somebody of a different 
uh, a national uh, uh, ethnicity than a white person. Okay, the experience that a police officer has to have in order to get away from that sort of thing is a day after day a bombardment of the notion you can't make your decisions based on color, whether or not you're going to stop somebody. You have to make your decisions based on conduct. You have to say to yourself, if this was a white person rather than a black person, or if these were three white kids in a car driving through Hyde Park, rather than three black kids in a car driving through Hyde Park, would I stop this car? That's the simplest way to get at it. And if you take a, you, you make an honest assessment and use the criteria that I just gave you, figure it out. There's, there's just a lot of self-doubt that comes with being a person of color in general, I think, or just comes with not necessarily being sure of your position in a community or a society in general. I mean, I'm a little um, on edge, but it's, I guess, nothing necessarily taxing because I've actually been stopped um, many more times in Dallas just driving, um, which is where I'm from. I've been stopped three or four times off the top of my head since I've gotten a license my, my junior year. But, I mean, I've always been told, like, by my parents to just be very, like, kind and proper with police officers. Um, you know, no sudden movement, all smiles, um, wait until they ask you to pull something out, to, to pull something out. Um, just that sort of protocol. If they don't uphold the Constitution with the citizens in the city, the citizens will never trust you. I don't trust the police. I never, I probably, in my lifetime, I probably never will, but... Hopefully it get better. It's a matter of leadership and driving the notion into the minds of your officers that you have to judge people on what they are doing, not on their color. And you have to treat them equally, equally. You don't uh, deny a, a, a person that you stop on the street a courtesy simply because they're black. All you have to do is say, if this was a white person, would I be doing this? Would I be saying this? Would I be acting this way? That's all you got to do. But that takes, you know, and that takes practice. You got to get that pre, that preconceived notion out of your head as to well, how you should act in this circumstance or that circumstance. Honestly, now that I have progressed more in order to be able to be more assertive, A, and B, like recognize yeah. what you said, it's, it's like all stemming from racism right now that I, I have a more fuller understanding of that if a situation like what happened to me in first year you know literally being stopped for walking home from a frat party yeah. you know if that situation had happened I definitely now would have tried to record the contact information of that particular officer or whatever and, and really reported it you yeah. know so now my threshold I think has gone down <laughs> over yeah. some years of being here for sure. I think we're really in a moment where a lot of police reform and changes to like the way police operate um, are really possible because of like Ferguson and Staten Island and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I think the 
in recent meetings with the university, um, some people have seemed more open to at least like considering our demands, which are basically like um, more transparency, like release these statistics and this information, um, be subject to at least all of the um, FOIA um, stuff that the CPD is subject to, and make the IRC, which currently is like a police review committee that doesn't have a lot of power, like make that actually community appointed and be able to discipline and fire police. Um, so I think um, after both after a lot of work on our part, like a lot of uh, actions and um, bringing a lot of people to university spaces and also kind of like the national uh, climate and the national movement, um, I think we are in a much better position to win um, on some changes. I feel like I'm doing a disservice by not partaking in, in any of these conversations, but it is also slightly like just a cathartic thing, like to be able to to be in an in an organization or a group or, or any kind of situation where you can be like, this is what happened to me, and you know, other people will say, yeah, I have a story like this, and I can relate, and you know, there, there's a sense, sadly, of community now yeah. <laughs> around people who have experienced these things on campus um, but I'd rather be part of that community than feel as though like I'm you know isolated in it Thank you to everyone who agreed to be interviewed for this podcast including Miles Johnson Nina Kate Maswa Lauren JT Brianna Tong Miles Sturkey and Rudy Nimix. And to everyone who worked on it, including Eric Holmberg, Kanjay Machini, Jessica Law, Noah Sawyer, Paul Dillon, Alex Ding, Shambit Chaudhary, and me, Kenya Senatorals. Music by Syria Geary. And a special thanks to you for listening.